The following audio is from Gold Country Baptist Church in Shingle Springs, California. Visit gcb.church to find more resources and to learn about our church. Please open God's holy word to the 20th chapter of Exodus. And we come to the end of the of this epic, earth-shaking scene. God has been thundering out the Ten Commandments that He is going to write with His own finger on tablets of stone. But we come to the end of this chapter, and the question before us is, how are God's people going to respond to God's revelation? What's going to help them and keep them to be able to keep these commandments? We're going to look at Exodus 20, verse Beginning in verse 18, now, when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. You may have noticed in verse 20, fearing Him is to help believers not to sin, but verse 20 starts with, do not fear. And so which is it? Are we to fear not, or are we to fear God? And the answer is yes. There is a fear. There's a fear that's about you, And then there's another fear that's about God that we need to talk about today and and consider this dynamic. It's not the first time in the book. Exodus 14 ends with the people fearing and, and fearing God rightly after the Red Sea crossing. But it also says in that same chapter, fear not about Pharaoh. Samuel told Israel, do not be afraid. And then in the same breath, he says, only fear the Lord. Second, that's 1 Samuel 12. Isaiah 8, 12 and 13, do not fear what they fear. Don't fear what the world fears. But he says, but the Lord, let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And there's this tension of these two types of fear. And I think a lot of the tension in our life is that we don't grasp and live in this tension, this tension of right fear and wrong fear. There is an unhealthy, self-centered fear in Scripture, but then there's also this healthy, God-centered fear that's spoken of many times, and I fear we don't hear enough about the fear of God, and we don't fear God enough. I, I know I do. I'm convicted. Many of my Struggles with sin would be far less if I feared God far more as I've been 
studying this. And this subject of fear comes, and it's no accident, after the Ten Commandments. And it's crucial, I think, to keep us from sin, even in light of all that's been given. And because this is so important, this is, there's more than I can just say today, Lord willing, next we'll be looking at fearing God versus sin today. And next week, I, Lord willing, want to consider the subject of fearing God versus fearing man, which is such a massive thing when you really dig into it. Over 150 times in Scripture, we are encouraged to fear God. And, and more than twice that many times, we are told to fear not. In fact, I think Pastor Dale has shared before that it's, it's 365 times in Scripture that we're told to not be afraid. One for every day of the year, if you will. We, we need to hear this every day. We need to not be afraid. We need to not be anxious. But not only do we need to fear not in certain things, but again and again the Bible says fear God. And in this context, it's don't fear that you are going to die right now. But God wants you to live in fear of Him as your holy God and Father. Verse 20 moves a scared self-focus to a sobered God-focus. And for believers, being God-fearers is what cures anxieties. And it causes other fears to fade. This is not a paralyzing fear that's, that's afraid of God. This is a proper fear that is active towards God. Sin wants us to stay away from God in, in the wrong kind of fear. But God wants us to come to Him in fear so that we stay away from sin. I think godly fear is a missing doctrine in some ways today, but it is a great help against sin, and it is a great hope for sinners, as we're going to see. And for today's study, I want us to look at fearing God, starting with this original context, fearing God versus sin in history. The sermon title is Fearing God versus Sin. The, the main point is we need to keep fearing Him to keep from sin. But starting with the history, and then number two, fearing God in future prophecy, this theme that's developed from the law and the prophets, and then Thirdly, fearing God in the gospel for today. But Old Testament Israel didn't just fear because of the sights and the sounds around them at Sinai. They also feared because of their internal sin. Not just their external phenomena, but their internal sin. Here's what Spurgeon said on the context. The, the terrible grandeur of this, of this chapter, this scene, may suggest to the people the condemning force of the law. It didn't come with sweet sound of harp or with the song of angels was the law given, but with an awful voice from amid a terrible burning, listen to his language, battalions of omnipotence marshaled on the scene, the dread artillery of God with awful salvos adding emphasis to every syllable. This is the scene of the commandments, and this is why they're begging for God to not keep speaking that way, for Moses to be a go-between. What did this mean for them historically? Here's what the New Testament gives as an inspired commentary in Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 19. At that time, his voice shook the earth, a voice 
whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. And then verse 25 applies what it meant for them and us. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God reveals his word and speaks his word with, with this in mind for New Testament believers. Do not refuse when God's word is being spoken. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns. Think about it this way. If just hearing God's law was so frightening, think about the day that you will meet God if you haven't kept his law. And that's what is ultimately before their mind because they're actually meeting the lawgiver here, but God wanted Israel and us to hear and to fear so that we would not refuse his word and its warning. Sometimes I'll hear people say, boy, I, I wish I could just hear from God directly like they did in Bible times. That would be great. Don't beg for that. Because if you got what Israel got here, you would be begging that it would stop Praise the Lord, we can hear from Him and not die. We have His sufficient Word. And there's enough in here to keep us plenty busy with what He's told us without wanting more. But don't refuse His Word as it's spoken from His messenger today. God says through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 5, Hear the word of the Lord, you who tremble at my word. That's the way we need to hear God's word. In the middle of Exodus 20, verse 20, it says, Fearing God is to remain with you to restrain sin. There's a parallel passage in Deuteronomy 5 where Moses adds some more details. He said, At that occasion, Israel said to him, God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. Why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and has still lived? Go near, they're saying to Moses, you, you go near and, and hear all that the Lord our God will say. And, and you speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you. And we will hear and do it. We want to hear, but we... We need to hear it from you. And the Lord heard your words, Moses says, when you spoke to me. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. And then God says to Moses, oh, that they had this heart always to fear me and to keep my commandments. God is saying, oh, Boy, if they could just have this heart always, they would fear me. It would go well with them forever, he says. Then a little bit later, Moses says, The Lord commanded us to fear the Lord our God for our good always. God says this for our good. And it's forever. Not just for Old Testament Israel. This is the heart that God is looking for in His people. It's for our good that it will go well. God says Israel spoke Right. They were right to say that. 
God is a consuming fire that we should fear. He is a danger for sinners to to approach casually or comfortably, to hear or even be near. It is right to fear and it's right to be in awe that we are still alive in light of God's holiness. Especially for them after hearing God from the fire. And they got it right. They need a go-between. They need someone to represent them. They need someone to to be a a spokesman, a, a mediator. Someone who can approach God and then who can come to them and bring them to God. Who can relay and mediate God's word to them. They were right in that desire. And God desires his people to always have this heart to fear and to obey Him. When Romans 3 lays out the problem with the total depravity of man, the universal corruption of man, it goes through all of these things, and the last thing it says is, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That kind of sums up everything that's come before. There's no fear of God before their eyes in their sin. And Exodus 20, verse 20 says, fearing God keeps from sin and the Deuteronomy passage says it helps keep the law that you may fear the Lord your God by keeping all his statutes and his commandments that's Deuteronomy 6 verse 2 so fear keeps and then Deuteronomy 8 verse 6 you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him and Deuteronomy 17:19 says as one reads the law he may learn to fear the Lord his God, by keeping all the words of the law. This is something we need to learn. And we need to learn by reading God's word. And in particular, the, the portion of God's word, the first five books of the Bible in particular in the, in the context there. But if we take all of Scripture, Jerry Bridges counted that over a quarter of the verses that talk about fearing God connect it to keeping his word, keeping his commandments This is a significant teaching in Scripture. The conclusion of the whole matter, Solomon says, Fear God and keep His commandments. This is the whole duty of man. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13. Fearing God is an all-important duty. Proverbs 16, verse 6. By the fear of the Lord, one keeps away from evil. You want victory. You want help keeping away from evil. The fear of the Lord keeps away, or other translations say turns away, or it avoids evil. It's, it's fearing the Lord that helps us get victory over sin. And this fear in the Bible isn't just linked to, or it's not just respect, although that's a part of it. It's not just reverence. It's also not just to be redefined so that there's no real fear or anything like fear in this word. This, this word is often, even in the New Testament, linked with trembling, fear and trembling. Paul says our, our salvation with fear and trembling, we need to work out the implications of it. Fear affects the whole person. Paul described his ministry to the Corinthians as, I was with you in fear and trembling, not in self-confidence. So that's what it's an opposite of, seeing our need. Fear affects the whole person. Proverbs eight thirteen the Fear of the Lord is to hate evil. So the more you know of your Father and this holy God and what He thinks about evil, when you hate evil, you're growing in the fear of the Lord. That's an emotional and even relational 
picture there, hating what, it, what God hates, but also hating what it does to God when we sin, thinking beyond ourselves, thinking of Him when we sin, hating to grieve the Spirit of God is how Paul describes it. We don't want to grieve the Spirit of God who we loved, who has sealed us for redemption. Here's what one writer says on Exodus 20, verse 20, that we're to be afraid of offending Him through sin, and and fear would function as a discipline to keep from sin. This, in fact, is always the value of the much-encouraged fear of God in Scripture. Being afraid of the consequences of disobeying God is a helpful attitude. And he says those who try to suggest the various commands to fear God are, are merely encouragements to hold Him in some sort of honor or awe. It includes that. But if, if we leave it at that, we're missing the point that fear is actually a beneficial mechanism. He gives some examples. Fear of death or injury helps people drive safely, or it should. Fear of heart attacks helps people work on their health, keep their levels low, certain things. Fear of Academic failure helps people study and learn. Fear of harming children is a dynamic in in marriages. Fear is this motivator often, but there is this this human self-centered fear that we need to differentiate that leads to sin. It actually leads us to to more sin and more anxiety or anger, whatever it is, while there's this God-centered fear that actually leads us away from sin and leads us away towards trusting ourselves or, or being anxious like everything depends on us and recognizing what we heard in our Scripture reading earlier that God, His kingdom rules over all. He is sovereign and He's good. And so we're not just to fear consequences for our sake. I think we need to qualify that. We need to fear offending the Lord we love for the sake of that relational love. And so I'm using the phrase godly fear to differentiate from a natural fear of sinners. Adam in the garden fears when he hears God, when he's, when he's sinned. And so what does he do? He hides. He says, I, was, I heard your voice and I was afraid, so I hid myself. That's when sin kicks in. That's a, a sinful kind of fear. Or Cain, he feared God and, and then also feared that people were going to kill him and, and he, he was not repentant towards God. He was resisting even God's word. Abraham feared for his wife and feared for his life and he lied and, and his excuse was there is no fear of God in this place. But he was showing he didn't fear God in that place. Lot feared and fled the Lord's judgment. Others in, in the story leading up to Exodus, they hear God and then they fear when they realize who's talking, they fear, they fall down to a man. But there's a time where God commends Abraham for fearing him. And it's the time when Abraham was willing to give up his son Isaac. And God commends him for fearing, for having faith. But it's the language of, you fear me. It's a fear that's godly, has faith in God. So this is not the fear in the story of Exodus of a slave in chapter 2. There's slaves fearing that they're going to be beat to death, and then 
Moses fears when he finds out the word has got out that he avenged a slave and he's fearful and he, he flees. It's not that kind of fear of a slave. It's, it's fear in the Savior. And so I want you to see this in the context of, of Exodus. Go back to chapter 14. As the Lord Yahweh saved Israel from slavery. This is when they feared death and he told them to fear not. But he led them through the sea and he drowned their enemies. And look at chapter 14 verse 30. The end of that story says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And so... The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. Their fear led to faith in the Lord, and then for the first time, they're trusting Moses as his representative, and so godly fear has faith, and it also has worship. This is what it looks like, chapter 15, and look at verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in wonders. That's, that's what it looks like. And verse 14, but it looks different for the unbelievers. Verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. And then verse 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. I'm reminded of a story where the Pevensey children are talking to Mr. Beaver, and he talks about Aslan, and there's different responses in the children. Edmund feels this mysterious terror and horror when he hears the name of Aslan, but the other children feel this is something momentous, this is something massive, this is something weighty, this is something huge. And they could tell by the very name that this was someone they were to highly revere and there's these different reactions with the enemies of Israel who hear about the Red Sea and Israel's response there praising the Lord who's like you you are there's no one like you you're majestic in your holiness you are awesome and, and even that old word awful it was in its fullest sense would be used of God it fears and worships God as almighty right fear does it's awestruck that is awesome, holy majesty, whereas the unbelievers, their, their only fear they can do is dismay and dread and terror, and they melt away afraid, but the saved, when they fear, they believe and they bow, they bow in humble adoration, and they say, how great thou art. And they also can sing what we just sang, tis grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. You realize that it's actually grace that teaches our hearts to fear. And then that grace also helps relieve those fears. But as sinners before a holy God, we, we fear. But then amazing grace relieves and it saves. But as grace teaches our hearts to fear, this is the kind of fear that falls forward in faith. It's trembling and Trusting the unsaved fear and they flee or they fall back. 
But the Christians fear and they fall forward. If we're going to flee, we're going to flee to Christ as our mediator, as our go-between, as our representative. This is not the servile fear of chapter 1. There was a fear that Israel had of their taskmasters. They were scared when there was a quota of bricks that they were told to make without straw. There was great trembling among the ranks of Israel. But this is not that slavish fear of being whipped mercilessly by a harsh slave master in that same chapter. It's not, think of the dread or terror if you're a mother and there's the Egyptian Gestapo coming to take babies and to throw them in the river. You would be terrified. Terrified. When are they going to come to my door? And you're trying to keep your baby quiet like Moses' mother was until he was three months old. You can imagine the terror. Every time you hear a noise, you're thinking, is it them? Are they coming? That's not the kind of fear that we're talking about. This is not even the fear Moses had of what the king would do to him if he was caught after he had killed the Egyptian. And so he fled and stayed far away for 40 years is not even the fright of the Egyptians. When they saw the plague, some of them feared, and, and some of them even kept, towards the end there, brought their animals to safety. But this is a fear that goes deeper than that. This is not the fear of Pharaoh. This is the fear of faith in the gracious Redeemer, the one who's rescuing them from Pharaoh. And maybe the most helpful way to think of this fear in our own context and relationships is think of the fear of displeasing your father think of the fear of grieving someone you love by your sin against them knowing in the context of covenant and family what that sin would do how you would grieve them if you sinned against them in a in a grievous way i feared the discipline of my dad growing up, but I knew he loved me. And as I grew later in life, I didn't want to hurt him. And when I did hurt him, that hurt me. And that, that gives us a little bit of a picture. I know not everyone had a, a good relationship with their father going, growing up, so we need to understand God. It, this is far bigger than anything we know, but that's the, that's the relationship. If you go back to chapter 4, that God wanted them to think of as he reveals himself through Moses. In chapter 4, he, he talks about his family fatherly claim. In chapter 4, verse 22, speaking to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. There are other times he says, let my people go. But this is also when he first reveals it here. This is my precious son. You've got my son. You need to let my son go. I'm a father to Israel. And he would be a father to others. Israel is the firstborn, but there would be more to come. But these are his precious children. His beloved firstborn had that special place and they were to serve him as father. They were to fear his displeasure. They were to fear his discipline, but they were not to fear their doom. There's a difference there. We don't fear doom as believers in in the family. And this fear keeps us from sin in a loving relationship with him. A son knows that there are consequences 
for disobedience. Even though the love of the Father is still going to be there, He'll always be a son. He's not a mere slave. And we are, as, as believers, the, the Lord is our master. He does own us. We are to serve Him as slaves in that way. He's absolute, but we need to remember Remember what we read earlier from Psalm 103. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. He has compassion on those who fear. For he knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He knows that we're frail children of of dust and, and feeble. It says the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. So if you fear him, there's, there's everlasting covenant love and his, his righteousness to children's children, to your children, to your grandchildren. Some of you have great-grandchildren who know that love. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. It keeps talking about fear and his love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far He's removed our transgressions from us. So we don't need to fear those transgressions if he has dealt with them because we trusted in him. And the application of Psalm 103 is this. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Don't forget any of those benefits. You you want to read Psalm 103 later. He crowns us with love and compassion. And we need to apply that by blessing him for all those benefits that flow to those who fear him. And so that's some of fearing God versus sin in history, but also the the prophets pick up on this theme. I want to look at fearing God in Jeremiah 32. If you would turn forward, this is the prophet after. So you go after Psalms and after Isaiah, but this is before Ezekiel, the prophet Jeremiah. Because in Exodus, God says he came to test Israel with this, the fear of God. But as you read their history, even in the first five books and and forward, Israel repeatedly failed the test. And they were in need of what the prophets would promise. God would send prophets with words of hope because they didn't keep from sin. They didn't keep the law. And Jeremiah 32 verse 39 is his promise for future Israel from that day in a day that his grace will teach their hearts to fear. Look at verse 39, Jeremiah 32. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. This is the, the sure hope for them. That God, there would be a God-given fear that would help them not turn away. And this is a hope not just for them This is a hope for other nations as well in the context. Look at chapter 33, verse 9. And this city, he's still speaking of of Israel. This city shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and a glory. But now he moves out before all the nations of the earth who shall hear of all the good that I will do for them. They shall, these are the nations, they shall fear 
and they shall tremble because of all the good as they see. And then it adds the word shalom, peace in every way. And the prophet is linking their hope in the future to fear and to God's good. And God's going to rejoice to do this good. And this is the hope for the world. Even as Israel right now is in a war on terror, we have these statements all around Scripture about nations all around Israel one day fearing and even turning to the Lord. We'll look at some of those a little bit later. So in Exodus, one nation hears and fears, but there is a day the prophets talk about when people of all nations will hear and fear as they see God's purposes in the end for his people. Look at chapter 33, verse 16. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. Those aren't the days right now. But verse 25, thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob. As long as there's day and night, he's not through with the Jews, which is good news for us non-Jews as well. Isaiah fifty nine nineteen says, Even enemy nations, even coastlands, Sometime in the end shall fear the name of the Lord from the west. A redeemer will come to Zion, to, to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions. And Paul quotes that in Romans 11 in the end for an end time salvation of Israel and the fullness of the Gentiles. Many of the Puritan writers also connected that promise with Hosea 3 verse 4. Let me show you this prophecy. It says, The children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod. And that's been their reality since 70 AD when all those things were, were taken away. They haven't had those, but, but later, verse 5 says, Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. And again, this, this theme and prophecy is fearing God leads us to his goodness. It brings goodness. And, and even though it's been many days since King David, I, I take this as, a, as the Davidic king or the son of David, that they will turn to Jesus as Messiah king in latter days. It's been many days, many centuries since the, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans. And there's been no sacrifices they can do ever since. There's been no priest, there's been no ephod, all of that many days. But in latter days, there's these prophecies here and in Isaiah and other places that the Prince of Peace as their priest and God as their king, they will turn to. It's certainly not peace in the Middle East right now. But there is this hope in Scripture of God's goodness, even amid evil, as people will turn and as Israel will fear and trust Jesus. Jonathan Edwards said this, Nothing is more certainly foretold than this national conversion of the Jews is in the 11th chapter of Romans. And there are also many passages of the Old Testament that cannot be interpreted in any other sense. Prophecies of the calling of the Jews, Judah, and the ten tribes shall be brought in together. The prophecies of Hosea 
especially seem to hold this forth. There's a fascinating book by Ian Murray called The Puritan Hope, where he traces this, this view of, of the future. I was, found this quote by John Newton, who say, wrote Amazing Grace, and this was also what amazed him as he looked at history. This is in the 1700s, but he says, we have what may be called a standing miracle continually before our eyes. The Jews, many have endeavored to exterminate, are still preserved by his wonderful providence. Many ages they have lived as the prophets foretold they should, without a temple, without sacrifice or priest, Hosea 3. But at length the fullness of the Gentiles shall come in, and all Israel shall be saved, Romans 11. The revolutions and commotions in kingdoms and nations which astonish and perplex politicians are all bringing forward this great event. We need to pray that God would be bringing salvation, not just for Israel, but for Gentiles. We need to pray for the fullness of of Palestinians to come in and the fullness of Arabs to come in. Did you know more Arabs have turned to Christ in the 21st century? I've heard some statistics than all the other centuries combined. God is at work, and we don't hear those things on the news, but we need to, here's, here's a prophecy of Egypt, the ancient arch enemy of Israel in the Exodus, has hope and prophecies of their salvation. Here's Isaiah nineteen sixteen. in that day the Egyptians will tremble, or some translations say fear, it's the same word, in that day five cities in the land of Egypt will be swearing allegiance to Yahweh. Nothing like this has ever happened in history, but I believe it will. Verse 20, it will become a sign and a witness to Yahweh of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to Yahweh because of oppressors, and he will send them a savior. That word for savior is Yeshua in the Hebrew, and he will deliver them. He will send them a Yeshua is actually the name of, of Jesus. Thus Yahweh will make himself known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know Yahweh in that day. They will even worship. And then it uses the language of true worship in their day. But they will, they will worship. And it goes on, Egypt will return to Yahweh and he will be moved by their entreaty and will heal them. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt and the Egyptians into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. This is worshiping the true God. In that day, Israel will be the third party with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom Yahweh of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria. This is astonishing. Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel. Assyria covers the area of modern Iraq and other Arab nations as well today, but that's a day to pray for Jews, Muslims converting to Christ, coming and worshiping together because it's in Christ that the hopes and fears of all the years are met in him. And so that takes us to our third and and final application. Fearing God in the gospel for today, Revelation 14.6 says in the end times, John sees this angelic messenger with, quote, an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth to every nation and tribe and language and people with a loud voice. Here's what the loud voice says. Fear God and give Him glory. And then chapter 15, verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord? Who will not glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All nations will come and worship. 
This is what drove the, the missions movement that came out of some of the, that, those Puritan convictions that God has a plan for nations and, and all nations and that, that we need to be a, a part of that, that he is going to call people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people group and the gospel proclaimed by us calls sinners to repent and to revere this Lord and to receive the, the mediator, the one who can be the go-between for you as Lord and Savior, Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. If we actually know the fear of the Lord, this should move us to, to persuade people. To persuade them. Do we really believe the fear of the Lord? Therefore, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. It's as though God were making his appeal through us. We beg you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is, this is our mission. We're ambassadors. Whether it's in a faraway island or in our community here, we're representing Christ. And we need to be telling people. They need to be reconciled to God. And Jesus is that reconciler, begging them and imploring them, pleading with them. Because we do need to fear as sinners before a holy judge. But there is a sin-bearing mediator who brings reconciliation so that we can be reconciled. We can come to God. Israel in fear begged for Moses to be the go-between on their behalf. But Jesus is our go-between. On our behalf, he actually did what Moses couldn't. He fulfilled all righteousness as a perfect law keeper. Israel was going to need someone more than Moses. That's who Jesus is. He fulfilled all righteousness. He kept the law perfectly. Moses didn't. Moses couldn't even go in the promised land. Jesus died on the cross. He was punished for the sins of lawbreakers. He had no sin, that passage says, but, but he had our sin imputed to him so that his righteous life can be imputed to us in this great exchange, God treats Jesus on the cross as if he lived my sinful life so that he can treat me as if I live the perfect life of Jesus, that perfect righteousness, that great exchange that's given to us. And so as ambassadors for Christ, we need to persuade, we need to appeal to people, we need to implore, don't be ashamed to beg, turn, trust him. And think of him, what he's done for us. Ernest Reisinger said Christ explained the law's meaning. He expressed the law's character. He embodied the law's duties. And he endured the law's penalty. That's what he did. So Christians don't fear hell or wrath. And Christ can help us not even fear death. What Israel feared in Exodus 20, death, Jesus fulfills. And so Romans 8 says, there's no condemnation now to fear. There's no, the song says, no condemnation now I dread of Jesus, and all in him is mine. Listen to Hebrews 12, 18. He tells New Testament Christians, you have not come. There's a contrast between us and the Old and New Covenant. You have not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. When you came to worship today, that's not what you saw. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion 
and to the city of the living God. These are heavenly realities, but we're already citizens of them. We're already blessed with everything in the heavenly places. He says, you've come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. We gather here, but there is an even greater gathering in the heavenlies. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, listen to this, the mediator of a new covenant. We've come to him, all of that's going on, but ultimately we come to Jesus. That's how we can come. And so John Newton again, he says, let us praise and sing and wonder. Let us praise our Savior's name. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. We're not under the old covenant having to stand far off and to beg for someone like Moses to be our mediator. We have a better mediator in Jesus and a better new covenant that actually forgives our law-breaking. Isn't that good news? We're not Israel who couldn't approach In the New Testament, it says we can now, through Christ, what he's done, we can boldly, bold I approach the eternal throne. We can come there and we can find mercy and help in time of need. We can go right to the Father, right to the throne for help, for mercy. And the God that we fear is merciful. Here's how the Gospel of Luke says it. Luke 150, his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's merciful to those who fear him. And there's a picture in Luke's gospel of one on the cross who's, who's next, to, next to Jesus. There's another criminal on the other side. But he, he begs for mercy by God's grace. And he said to his partner, don't you fear God. So he's yelling across to his partner. Jesus is in the middle and he's saying to his partner, don't you fear God. We're being punished justly. We're getting what we deserve. I'm moving my hands, but he couldn't move his hands. He's just there. He said, he said but we've done nothing wrong. And then he looks over at Jesus, and he, and he basically is begging him to mercifully remember him in the kingdom. And Jesus turns to him and says, truly, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The wonderful picture of the mercy of one who fears God and looks to Jesus in faith. That day in paradise, he's with his Lord. You can just imagine them both being in heaven and they're looking at him. How did you get in here? I, I'm with this guy here. <laughs> he said I could come. He said he would be with me. Jesus died and when he rose again, the women who witnessed the resurrected Lord that morning went in fear and it says great joy. There's fear and joy. Maybe I'll talk about that more next week. And it was then that Jesus calls believers his family. He calls sinners his family. In John 20, verse 17, Go tell my brothers. That's the first time he's called them brothers. Even as they fear the Lord Jesus, he calls them family. He's not ashamed to call us brothers. Pastor Corey just preached 1 Peter 1.17. If you call on him as father, this is by adoption because Jesus is our brother. If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. There's still fear that we're to have in this life. 
But why, he says, we were redeemed with the Lamb's precious blood. To think about the precious blood of the Lamb that was shed for us. Why would we want to keep living in sin in light of that? Exodus 14 pictures that. Exodus 19 says God brought them as a special treasured possession. That's the context of Exodus, but of all Scripture, how fearing God can keep us from sin in loving relationship with Him. But it's not the fear you have before a judge. It's the fear you have before a loving Father, reverent love. So Spurgeon says, we're not afraid of our Father as loving children. We feel a holy awe and reverence as we realize our relationship to Him, a dear, loving, tender, pitiful, I mean, compassionate Father, yet who is greatly to be feared. It's a filial, childlike fear. Lest we should do anything contrary to his mind and will, holy fear leads us to dread anything which might cause our Father's displeasure. So we love and fear. If if you feel you lack this fear that your heart is sometimes divided, here's a great prayer to pray. Psalm 86, 11. Unite my heart to fear your name. If you pray that, God, unite my heart to fear your name. Help me not to be double-minded like James talks about. Help me to fear God will help you and help us to think and speak of him more reverently, growing in holy fear of our Holy Father. Not like Israel at Mount Sinai who trembled as the law was given because of we have Mount Calvary where Jesus was given for our violations of the law. And so we're going to sing here in a moment. At last, my sin I learned from your word, and I trembled at the law I'd spurned, but then my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. At that other mount, mercy is great and grace is free. And so let's praise God for that pardon, but let's go as sent ones and let's proclaim his fear and his love to others. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Our great God, we thank you for this great truth, Lord, that we need. I know I need. I fall short of this, but I thank you for Christ. And Lord, help us keep us from sin as we keep our minds making much of him who we fear and love. We pray these things for your honor and glory. Amen.